Hello and welcome to Globus, the official podcast of SDSN Youth USA. My name is Nikita and I am joined by my co-host Elizabeth. This week we invited Professor Richard Lazarus of Harvard Law School to talk about his experience as one of the pioneers of environmental law, education, and the future of global environmental legislation. Professor Lazarus is the Howard and Catherine Abel Professor of Law at Harvard University, where he teaches environmental law, natural resources law, Supreme Court advocacy, and torts. Professor Lazarus has represented the United States, state and local governments, and environmental groups in the United States Supreme Court in 40 cases, and has presented oral argument in 14 of those cases. Let's listen in on some of his insights. I'm a law professor. I'm honored to be your first lawyer uh, to be interviewed in a country where lawyers play an outsized role uh, more than they do in other countries. Uh, and that's certainly true in environmental law. So I've been doing, you mentioned a moment ago that you met in high school. Um, I actually picked this area right out of high school. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I was 16 years old. I looked about 12. Uh, years old. Uh, I was trying to decide um, how I could do something significant in my life. That's no understatement. And, and I tried to figure out how I could marry what I thought I might be good at uh, with what I cared about. Uh, and it was actually that formula which led me to environmental law. It's not as though I can claim I grew up in central Illinois farm country. I can't say that I'd ever visited any national park in the United States. I have been some incredible hiker and I went up to Half Dome and I saw the world in front of me or spent time seeing the beauty of the oceans. I grew up in the Midwest. I saw the beauty of farms uh, and I smelled uh, manure from my house because that's what you smelled uh, going off of, uh, off of the farms. Uh, but it really was just trying to figure out what I thought I'd be good at and what I cared about. Um, and I was very political as a kid, and I saw environmentalism. This is the early 1970s. And I saw environmentalism sort of rising in the aftermath of Earth Day. Uh, and I thought that would be really interesting to work in the environmental space. I, I certainly would never have said environmental space back then. I don't think that terminology existed, but I wasn't so cool that I would have said it would be groovy uh, to work uh, in that either. Uh, and so I picked that, and then I had to try decide what I was going to major in. I didn't know any lawyers at all. I didn't know any lawyers growing up. I knew people who taught at Urbana, Illinois University. And so I decided I wanted to do environmental law, and I brought up the University of Illinois course catalog to decide what I should major in. I flipped through it, and I came a course. Sorry, I came across a class called environmental chemistry. So I said, okay, I should get a degree in chemistry. Uh, then. And I kept flipping through the course catalog and I came across a course called environmental economics. I said, okay, uh, I'll get a, I'll take a degree in economics too. That's literally how I chose uh, my degrees. Uh, and uh, I'd never taken econ class in my life. I'm not quite sure I knew what it was, except there was a class called environmental economics. And in chemistry, I'd done particularly well uh, in high school, but I was pretty good at math. Um, and my father was a physicist. So I picked those two uh, and got a BS in chemistry and a BA in economics. Uh, I would tell people when they asked, why are you doing that? Uh, I said, pre-environmental law. I would say more often than not, people would say to me, what's that? 
because the term environmental wasn't in a normal sort of discourse uh, back then. This is right after Earth Day. A lot of the environmental statutes hadn't passed uh, yet in the United States. The EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, had just been created. Uh, the state analogs didn't yet exist at all. So I picked that. It was a good pick. It was a naive pick. Um, it was a youthful pick, uh, but happily it worked. And I've pretty much been immersed in that ever since. So what, what do I do? Well, now I teach um, environmental law. But before that, I went to law school. I took everything all environmental here at Harvard Law School where I'm on the faculty where I can rest assured that no one in my, I never thought I'd be back here as a professor. And certainly none of my classmates ever imagined I'd be back here uh, as a law professor. Uh, and after law school, I became an environmental lawyer, uh, mostly with the federal government, Department of Justice, what was then the Lands Division, renamed in 1990 the Environment Division. Uh, and I brought cases enforcing the nation's environmental laws, defending the nation's environmental laws. I did that for about four years. In law school, I worked for different organizations, usually non-government organizations, most notably the Environmental Defense Fund as a law student. So I practiced for about four years, and then I became a law professor. Uh, I was 28 years old. I thought I was pretty old. Uh, only now do I have a different perspective on, on age. Uh, and I uh, you know, basically began teaching uh, and very much switched my direction to one of launching wonderful students where we become leaders in the environmental law field uh, and writing about it, writing scholarship. Um, my scholarship has always been, and that's true now, uh, you know, almost 40 years later, uh, always been to law and policymakers. I don't write to law professors. Uh, and that's not my audience. I don't care that much about law professors. I love them. They're my friends. Uh, but I'm not trying to convince them of anything. Uh, I'm trying to convince law and policymakers of things. So I write them. I took a stint off uh, for four years in the mid-80s and went back to the Justice Department to work in the Solicitor General's office of the Justice Department, which does all the Supreme Court cases uh, for the United States, and then worked for four years arguing cases and briefing cases before the court, a bunch of environmental cases. Then I came back to teach again um, in 89, and I've really been doing that pretty much ever since, uh, teaching all the environmental law classes, uh, doing a lot of scholarship. The scholarship has changed over time, uh, environmental justice, in the 90s, environmental criminal law as well. Uh, spent a lot of time uh, working on things called the regulatory takings issue about the constitutionality of federal, state, and local environmental law. And as much as I think teaching and launching students is the most important thing I do as a teacher, uh, and my scholarship is very important, one great thing about an legal academic is you can play on the side. Uh, I, I, I've got a full-time salary so I don't have to worry about charging anyone anything. Uh, and so I do a lot of pro bono uh, litigation. I've done a lot of litigation uh, for environmental groups, Environmental Defense Fund in front of the Supreme Court, Natural Resource Defense Council uh, in front of the court, uh, a lot of local governments. And now I get to pick my cases. When you're in the federal government, you get your cases. They're given to you, whether you like the position or not. And with the federal government, you win. Uh, once you move to the other side, you're representing environmental groups in the first instance, uh, you're not winning uh, quite as much. Uh, but it's a great part uh, of the job uh, is to basically enforce the statutes, bring lawsuits representing 
individuals, sometimes environmental groups, other times, uh, sometimes supporting the federal government in good times. More recently, uh, under the Trump administration, it was you know, all hands on deck uh, to try to basically slow things down as much as we could. Uh, my only formal role outside of law teaching for the past decade plus is I'm on the board of the Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm chair of the other litigation. Uh, and so on the board, uh, I, I don't, I'm not their primary litigator, but uh, we basically oversee the litigation, approve the litigation. I work very closely with Vicki Patton, uh, who's the general counsel of our Defense Fund. But then I still uh, work closely with uh, Natural Resource Defense Council or Justice, other groups, because I've got a lot of friends there. And you know, I got a lot of students uh, there too. You're the first lawyer on our podcast. Uh, this puts you actually in a special position of being probably one of the most U.S.-centered and U.S.-based guests that we've also had on our show, um, which, uh, you know, it, it brings kind of its uh, its own perspective. Given that, like, most of our guests would, would have been kind of uh, categorized as more internationally minded, how do you see your position as an educator, as a lawyer, working very closely, you know, for and against when it's appropriate the U.S. government? And uh, how do you see yourself uh, and, and people like yourself, since lawyers have such a unique position in this country, um, uh, how do you see yourself connected to maybe the international community? Or how do you see your work and, and so on and so forth connected to a wider a, a community wider than just the U.S.? Yeah, no, it's a, a great question. You're certainly right. I am a U.S. focused person. I'm a domestic focused person. There are people who are international environmental lawyers, which is a wonderful perspective, although we really don't have much international environmental law <laughs> to enforce. Our, our laws tend to be more nation-specific. Uh, we don't really have very strict sort of kind of enforceable international environmental law as much as we might wish to, uh, in, in a couple ways, or I should say three ways. Uh, first, my students are not uh, U.S. only at all. Um, uh, the students I teach here and students I taught before at Georgetown University, where I taught for 16 years and other places, they're from all over the country, uh, especially my graduate students, not the regular JD students. We have students from other parts of the, of the country, uh, sorry, other parts of the world who are already lawyers, and they come here to Harvard and other places, and they're here for a year, sometimes two. Uh, and I have students from all over. So I had a wonderful student uh, just recently. Um, he's just graduating later this week uh, from Mexico. Uh, he came from Mexican, he was a clerk for the Mexican Supreme Court, did a lot of research under my supervision this year, took a couple of my classes, fabulous student. He's going back to work for a non-governmental organization in Mexico, uh, bringing climate uh, cases. He wrote a terrific paper on how the Paris Agreement, the Paris Climate Accord uh, in 2015, influences Mexican law, in Mexico, which would never happen in the United States. It wouldn't influence US law. We don't work that way. Uh, so I, I have students from all over. Uh, I have students from Italy. I have students from South America, students from Asia, students from Germany. Um, and they're all interested in many of the same things, often climate, sometimes animal rights uh, and other issues. But we launch people all over the place, uh, not, just, uh, not just the United States. Uh, the second way we have an influence is this. Uh, there's no question, right, the sustainability and climate change uh, is the single most compelling issue uh, we face uh, across the globe uh, right now. Uh, it's portent uh, for the rest of the 
uh, of globe, both you know wildlife uh, uh, as well as uh, humankind, is enormous. Um, and on on that scale, um, to get anything done internationally, the United States has to be a leader, and that's just as a practical matter for this reason, and that is the rest of the world does not want to step up to the plate unless they see the United States is all in first. Uh, and that's for a simple reason of equity. Most of those greenhouse gases up there, guess whose they are? They're ours. Uh, uh, the United States is not right, responsible for more annual emissions than any other country now. China surpassed us about a decade ago. But when it comes to greenhouse gases, annual is not the only name of the game. It's cumulative. Because the problem with greenhouse gas, especially carbon dioxide, is they stay up there. Not for a year, not for two years, not for decades. They stay up for decades and decades and decades up there. You look at cumulative emissions, which are causing climate change right now, which are dramatically affecting, yes, the United States, but even more so, more tragically, the more vulnerable, marginal parts of the world who had nothing to do with putting that stuff up there. They're the ones who are suffering the greatest right now. And the rest of the parts of the world say, look, you're not going to see us curtail our economies, our development, uh, unless the United States acts first. Because after all, you enjoyed all your economic growth and you put all that stuff up there. So as a matter of sheer equity, unless we are in first, you can't expect them to play. Uh, and it's no happenstance, right? The Paris Accord happened in December 2015. Uh, and the reason it's no happenstance is that's because Barack Obama came to office in January 2009. And he immediately said, right, in one of his first speeches on January 26, 2009, about the, right, existential catastrophic threat of climate change. And Obama understood that unless the United States ended up first, there would never be an international agreement, which is why all the prior agreements had really collapsed, including Copenhagen during his first few years uh, in office. So he was hell-bent to get an infrastructure in place. They couldn't get national legislation through because there's such partisan gridlock. So he put into place one regulation, after another regulation, another regulation, and he knew his deadline was December 2015. So unless he could get it done before December 2015, there'd be no Paris Accord. So he did the auto rules in the first couple of years. He then did methane rules. He did landfill rules. But the big thing he needed to take on after auto emissions were the coal-fired power plants in this country, along with autos, the single biggest source of greenhouse gases. It was called the Clean Power Plant. Very complicated to get done. He got it done when? October 2015, with barely a month to spare. If he had not gotten the Clean Power Plant done in October 2015, there'd be no Paris Accord. So to the extent that I can play a role in pushing, promoting, defending, forcing, climate change rules in the United States, I know that I'm playing an important role when it comes to international efforts in all those other countries to do it. The final thing is, although I'm not a big world traveler, I've actually got to play a, some of a role. I, uh, I've taught twice on uh, uh, two different stints, just unbelievably opening uh, in Tehran. Uh, in 2001, I went to Tehran University and I taught uh, classes there on environmental law uh, to students, but also to NGOs uh, in Iran. People don't realize there are a lot of non-government organizations in Iran, mostly run by women, uh, more than run uh, by men. And I went back 
uh, in the spring of 2016 and taught again uh, in Tehran. They face major air pollution issues, major water pollution issues, uh, huge climate uh, questions as well. Um, and so that was really uh, gratifying. Uh, I know other people, other academics who spend much more time in other countries uh, than I do. But I can tell you that every time I do in Tehran was eye-opening uh, to spend time uh, there for obvious reasons. Our relations between Iran and the United States, let's say, have not always been um, friendly. Uh, but it was nice to be able to talk about their issues, environmental justice issues in Iran uh, as well. That, that was a really thoughtful response. And I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned your student from Mexico and how he had written this paper. Um, you also mentioned that the U.S.'s economic development came at the expense of these carbon emissions. And because the, the standard of living in the U.S. is much higher than many countries, um, how can we begin to help people understand the pressing issue of climate change? Um, and I think this is obviously a very broad question, but I'd be interested to hear from your perspective how you feel the most pertinent way of getting the ordinary person to care about this work can move forwards. And certainly I think your work as an educator has speaks to this as well as, you know, traveling, you mentioned going to Tehran, that also seems like a really important opportunity, you know, seeing people who are facing very different issues from those individuals in the U S but um, yeah, so I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, it's, it's really hard, Elizabeth. Uh, it, it's, it's why we are stumbling so badly on addressing the climate issue in the United States. It's hard for any lawmaking system to address uh, climate change effectively. And it's not necessarily because of sort of classic corruption or good guys and bad guys. It's just a structural problem, which you're hinting at here. And that is environmental law always is hard to make because what environmental law requires, because of the way cause and effect works in the ecosystem, environmental law tends to require you to regulate people here and now for the benefit of people there and then. Uh, and that's because environmental consequences spread out over time and space. Uh, so you have pollution activity here, which causes some harm, you know, a day later or three days later, uh, you know, 10, 20 miles away. So you're regulating one party for somebody else. That's hard to do. Now look at climate change. Uh, you're regulating somebody at one time, right, for consequences that may not happen for 80 or 90 years. And you're regulating activity at one place, which won't necessarily occur in that same place. Uh, it will occur thousands and thousands of miles away. And it's really hard for anyone, the most wonderful person in the world, to wrap their head around that and say, all right, uh, you need to drive less. You need to have a more fuel-efficient car. You need to turn your air conditioning down or your heat down because if you don't, you're causing people to starve uh, in Africa. Uh, you're you're going to cause hundreds of thousands and millions of people to migrate uh, to other countries because they can no longer farm. They can no longer get the water they need to survive. And that's going to destabilize the world. You're going to cause the spread of infectious disease because you are keeping your light bulbs on too long. That's hard. Uh, it's actually true, right? But it's really hard. Uh, it's hard politically. And that's why 
we do so poorly uh, in the United States. Democracy doesn't do so well with this because people tend to vote, uh, right, based on short-term time horizons. Uh, what's the economy right now? What's the price of gasoline? Oh my God, throw the bums out. Um, and so it's really hard to get elected officials. In this country, we depend upon elected officials. Only so much other branches of government can do. We depend on elected officials in the first instance. So it's really hard to get people to wrap their heads around it, uh, cognitively, because human beings tend to have myopia. Uh, they tend to think along short-term time horizons and in terms of what they can see and what they perceive. So it's really hard and it's hard everywhere in the country. And that's why we're doing so poorly at it. So what can one do about it, right? One, try to be cheerful and optimistic. <laughs> because if you aren't, if you visit most environmental law professors' offices and you looked over here, you would see a dent in my wall. Most environmental law professors who care about this issue have dents in their wall because they spend their time banging their head against the wall. And they've been doing that for a long time. Uh, so one is you, you're optimistic, right? Even if there are hard times. And then you, you teach students how hard this issue is and why. Uh, and then you try to help every way you can to make people realize what's at stake. Because I can teach all the law students I want, and they're fa I have fabulous law students. Um, but we have to change people's minds about this. So one thing, you know, unfortunately, is climate change has gotten so perilous right now, we're actually seeing effects right now in the United States. And that does affect people. I wish it didn't. I wish people would vote thinking, oh my God, this is morally reprehensible, what we are doing to the rest of the world that they're suffering first. I wish we had that kind of culture here. Um, there are obviously some people like that, but most don't. Uh, so when people see that their homes are being threatened by erosion, their homes are being threatened by flooding, when we see parts of the country literally lit up with fire around, uh, we have to hope that people will see and now begin to appreciate that climate change isn't just something theoretical, it's not just something which is happening a centuries from now. It's something that's happening now. And people need to address it now. Uh, what, what gives me some hope here, um, Elizabeth and Nikita, is this. Uh, as hard as it is right now to sort of see how we're going to get through this, uh, because there's so much denialism, including the United States, it wasn't that long ago that we were this close to see any meaningful laws passed. In January 2009, when Barack Obama won the election, both parties were in favor of significant climate change legislation. The person he defeated was John McCain. John McCain had been a climate hawk. He had held hearings early 2000 about the seriousness of the climate change issue. None other than Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich, a conservative Republican, had done ads on television together saying, well, Nancy and I disagree about most everything, but one thing we agree about is climate change. Uh, so things changed quickly. My hope is they can also change quickly back. Uh, that's what we have to hope for. And that's going to happen. No shortcuts. We can bring lawsuits to try to speed things up. Uh, we can bring lawsuits to try to slow things down uh, when the other uh, folks are in power. Um, but the courts aren't going to rescue us here. It's going to require people voting and making people understand at the state and local level, in the first instance, 
what this means for their cities, uh, to what extent climate change is threatening them now and threatening their pocketbooks and threatening their jobs. Uh, you know, I wish people would say, I'm worried about endangered species. I am, uh, but most voters aren't. Uh, so we have to hope that will happen. And then, to be honest, we also have to hope the private sector steps up to the plate. Um, for instance, I'll give you a couple examples. If the insurance industry starts to actually charge rates, which reflects true climate risks, and people have to pay for insurance that actually takes into account the risks of climate change, that will be a private sector game changer. And while the politicians can fictionalize climate risk, insurance companies are not in the business of fictionalizing risk because it affects their bottom line. If the banking industry starts charging and taking account climate risks when they lend money in account of what this actually will do, this business, whether it's viable or this business may be really viable now because they have, they have a good or service which address the climate issue and they have more favorable market loan deals for some around the other, that'll change the private sector. If the Securities and Exchange Commission starts to make people disclose climate risks in their public offerings of stock, so companies like the petroleum companies have to disclose those risks to the other fossil fuel companies and their stock prices go down as a result, that'll affect climate change. And those companies that have good potential under a climate a regime moving to a carbon-free technology, they seem more profitable because of their corresponding disclosures, that's going to affect it. It's not just going to be government and government regulation. It's not going to be lawsuits. We're all in. Uh, it's going to require the private sector. It's going to require the churches and religions of this country, which do tend to have a broader outlook on life and more responsibility. It's going to take a lot. I'm still hopeful we can do it.
Nikita, before you step in, I'm curious whether you're familiar with the work of Cass uh, Sunstein. Yes. Yes. So I, I find his work. His on, office. His office yeah. is right down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I find his work on like choice architecture really fascinating, and his and his conversation around nudges um, pretty applicable here. So I'm wondering, like, could you draw a parallel? between kind of the choice choice architecture of the private sector could offer what uh, environmental law and regulation could offer for the individual. Because um, while I agree with what you're saying, and you know, this is sort of a question of recognizing that these organizations and these institutions have far greater power when it comes to inflicting this sort of change than the individual consumer. The individual consumer is also, there's a, it's a pretty reciprocal relationship. So we've got to change human behavior. That's saying that CAS works a lot on, uh, and that is cognitive behavior. Um, there's no question. A wonderful academic named Dan Kahan uh, at some law school, which I think is barely accredited in New Haven, uh, also does some important work uh, in this area. That was a joke, by the way. I'm referring to a law school called Yale. Uh, it's a four-letter word up here in Cambridge, uh, but we do recognize there's some good people uh, down there. So changing people's cognition and changing their behavior, absolutely. And Cass has done groundbreaking work this area. So I'll give you a good example of, of nudge, how you just make people think about these things. This is just one technique which has been used fairly effectively. And that is when people get their electric bills or their natural gas bills, the bill shows them how they're doing compared to their neighbors uh, in terms of conservation. And guess what? If they're doing well, what do they get on their bill? A little smiley face. If they're not doing so well, they get a little frowny face. It actually makes people change, like little smiling faces and little frowny faces. Uh, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not demeaning people. I see them and I want, I want a smiley face when I get my bills uh, the following month. I don't want a frowny face and I know I'm being taken, but I still like it. Uh, it's like getting little stars um, when you were a kid in, in grade school. We all want those stars. So they're little things that can be done. They're very simple things that can be done, which we've actually done a fair amount of on recycling. Uh, there's no question we still have a major waste disposal problem in the United States, but compared to 40 years ago, uh, there's no, there's no con it's a huge contrast. People now regularly recycle. Uh, they regularly do all kinds of things. Those are nudges. Those are classic nudges. They don't cost anything make people sort of a little more aware what they do uh, than before. So little behavioral nudges, not, not always a law requirement. Uh, now we actually have to sometimes defend those against legal challenges. There are people who don't want them. The people argue it's a violation of the First Amendment uh, and the rest. So we, we still need our lawyers uh, often to defend against these things, but nudges are very important. With regard of like pub to public opinion, I think you seem to be making a reference, um, touching on this subject of, I would call it a missing link. Uh, within the understanding of, I guess, like the general human psyche, uh, this is the same thing with the nudges and the same thing with um, general like social architecture. The question becomes uh, not like why don't people care, but um, where do they make the connection between what am I doing today? Um, how am I, for example, watering my garden that's contributing to uh, forest fires along, you know, the western coast of the United States? Um, how is kind of that link elucidated and how um, how do we get to a, to a point where it's very clear to see that kind of our actions are, are 
uh, are causing these effects. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, what we've learned is they only perceive it once it's happening. Um, and, that, and now it's happening. Uh, so what's very important is to get out uh, the word that a couple things. One, to get out the word it's happening. And I think I think we're seeing that more and more through public education. Uh, second is that there's something we can do about it. Um, I mean, the risk here we have right now is climate denialism will go on the decline. Uh, and then people will say is, but what can we do about it? There's nothing we can do about it because if we don't, if we do it, but then the rest of the world doesn't, it's going to happen anyway. And if you look at the climate deniers, they're often moving to that second issue. They're saying, well, even if, the, even if, even if mankind is or humankind is having this effect, uh, it's not like we can do anything about it. And so environmental groups, environmentalists have to be very careful about going and becoming doom and gloom. Uh, because if you say, look how awful it is, how catastrophic it is, then people will give up. And they'll say, well, what's the point of me, my doing anything? So you have to make people realize there's something we can do about it in two ways. One, what's called mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions that are occurring now. Because the longer we take to deal with it, the exponentially harder it will be to get the concentration down later. And the second is climate change is happening. It's going to affect you right now. We need adaptation. We need adaptation right now to mitigate and reduce the harms that are happening right now because of climate change. And the third thing we have to do, and this is very important politically in the United States, is we have to recognize there are people who are being like, adversely affected as we switch, and we have to switch fairly quickly, not in a sort of like smooth way to a more carbon-free economy. And there are people whose jobs livelihoods depend upon one kind of economy as we need to switch to another. And they're often the big opponents of climate change. And also you have these, the warring factions of the coal miners in West Virginia versus you know, the environmentalists in New England. And a lot of the coal miners say, you know, <laughs> what, what do you want us to do? Uh, and the fact is environmentalists have for too long paid insufficient attention right, to the needs of those communities. And you need to have what's called a just transition. You need a transition, and this is part of environmental justice. It's a different part of environmental justice. But taking care of those communities which will suffer, which are often low-income communities, um, and often communities of color, but not necessarily, recognizing they're going to, in fact, be hurt by the, by the, by the abrupt transitions we, move, we need to move to a different kind of economy. And actually spending the money to take care of them spending the money to address their needs, spending the address health care, spend the money addresses their employment, spend the money necessary to give them other, other sort of economically viable and respectful ways to live and thrive uh, with each other. Uh, it's actually far less money, right, than spending, what, four, three, I'm not exaggerating, hundred millions of dollars on a congressional campaign somewhere to try to get one more vote in the House for two years, spend that money. Stop spending the money, which goes to a lot of very wealthy political pundits and consultants. Spend the money actually dealing with the people in these communities, in the South, in West Virginia, and other communities. Uh, that also has to be part of the equation, treating people with respect uh, and recognizing uh, that there's a reason for their intransigence. There's a reason for why 
they feel so strongly about this. Uh, and it's worth uh, listening to and respecting. If we do that, right, we actually can change minds and change votes. If we don't, um, I don't think we can. What's very important to actually the American psyche, like the way of life um, that we are used to and kind of maybe like the standards that we are used to uh, while sort of changing the goals of, of our economy and kind of our actions. Um, how do we turn, you know, one of the most criticized things is uh, right right now globally as well is kind of uh, the focus on the growth economy and how it's simply unsustainable, plain, plain and simple by definition. Um, so how do we kind of uh, transition into this, uh, I guess, um, new way of doing things while uh, conserving, I guess, like what, what people value about their lives? Yeah, I think it's a question of trying to show people how well lives can be, can be lived um, and trying to change uh, people's perception of what wealth is. Uh, the wealth isn't necessarily the biggest car or the biggest house. Uh, the wealth can be defined among many uh, dimensions, and many of those dimensions uh, don't involve sort of excessive exploitation of, uh, of, natural, of natural resources. But often really it's a question of respect. Um, you know, in, An Inconvenient Truth, which my guess is, uh, is a film you've all seen. And, and I further guess it's probably a film that you celebrated and thought how wonderful that is. I didn't. Uh, when I saw Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, I walked out of that theater furious when I saw it. Why? Uh, because I, this is a disaster. This is the wrong framing to try to convince the American people about the seriousness of climate change. Why? First, remember how the movie began? The movie began in the first few scenes showing the Florida election controversy uh, of 2000 and the hanging Chad ballots. So it immediately became a Democrat versus Republican. It immediately came about how Al Gore had been denied the presidency. This can't be, you can't buy into the notions of a partisan issue. You have to buy in the, in the notion of this should be a nonpartisan, not bipartisan, a nonpartisan issue. Second, how did the film structure itself? Al Gore is standing on a stage telling the American people what? The truth. Great, right? That's just what we need. And he's talking about how he learned the truth where? As a college student at Harvard University. That's where he learned the truth. And now he's going to share the truth with right the masses. Disaster, right? Disaster. Uh, it shouldn't be Al Gore hero. It shouldn't be what you learned at Harvard University, right? It should be about regular people in regular positions and farmers and workers and, and miners and what it means to their lives. Uh, it, sh it should not be about the elitist. On it was like the complete wrong framing for it. And that was like our big celebratory framing. And we're going to teach the world. It was Al Gore. And then he had all these wonderful students and their college students from wonderful Ivy League campus and the rest. And they're all going out and teaching Al Gore's curriculum. It drove me crazy uh, because it fed into this notion of partisanship, of elitism, of lecturing other people on the truth. Uh, uh, and so we need to get out of that framing. Um, we need to actually go to people and treat people with respect. Uh, 
I mean, one thing I've learned, I've done some work in the environmental justice area uh, since 1992. Um, and what I quickly learned was when I do environmental justice work, guess what I do? I shut up. I listen. I listen to what they're telling, what they're teaching, uh, what they care about. Uh, it's not what right, some white law professor, where I was teaching, uh, thinks, telling them what they should think and what they should care about. Uh, so you have to start with those affected communities, whether you're talking about the climate issue or environmental justice issue. Uh, you got to go to them and figure out what they want. Uh, and they often right, just want a good life. They're not necessarily looking, right? Their view of a good life, we could all learn from. Uh, and it's not necessarily like such a, uh, a resource uh, intensive life. They're trying to get by. Uh, they're trying to you know, get their you know, kids to college, if, if maybe. Uh, they're trying to get good stability. They're trying to get good health uh, as well. Uh, so I think we need to focus uh, more um, on the, the needs and learn more from, from people uh, in the communities. Uh, than to assume that this is a question of a top-down. Top-down doesn't work so well. Could you provide an example of a case in which um, there was really a space provided for community advocates and kind of this like performance of community needs? Um, and I think I use the word performance as well because that seems like a very key part of this in the same way that partisan politics are often performed, um, as you mentioned just in the film, the same way they seem to kind of take precedence in a public perspective. Um, I think when we sent you the interview questions, we had the example like a super fun site. Um, so community advocates for that, it, of course, like helped gain massive attention. So we'll, yeah, would love to hear any anything specific that you would be able to provide. I mean, in, in many respects, I'll, I'll give you what I think is probably one of the better examples. Uh, and that is the whole environmental justice movement itself. Uh, the environmental justice movement really came from the local communities. Uh, it did not come from a national organization or sort of academic thinkers writ large. Uh, it really is something that developed from the ground up and it's, it's transformed environmental law, which still needs further transformation uh, in terms of environmental justice. Um, it was local communities which pointed out the, the problems uh, that were happening uh, and the racial dimension to them and the income dimension to them, which the national environmental groups were really resistant to. Uh, they could not believe that what they did could somehow be racist or insensitive environmental issues, I mean, to racial issues. Why? Because many of the early environmentalists of the 60s and 70s came from the civil rights movement. Uh, they were predominantly white, uh, they were predominantly from, you know, very fancy uh, schools, but they thought they were good liberals and good progressives. And they learned from the local organizations that they weren't. Um, even so much so that the local organizations, a lot of those across the country, wrote a letter that was published in the New York Times telling the national environmental groups that they had basically let the group, they let civil rights and environmental justice and communities down. They had not served the needs uh, of the low-income and, and racial minorities, especially African-Americans in the country. It was a front-page New York Times article uh, calling them uh, to task for it. It was a thunderbolt 
and they've led to a whole series uh, of changes um, uh, in sort of environmental enforcement in those communities, especially under the Biden administration. There's now a whole environmental justice office uh, at the Department of Justice looking at those communities, trying to bring actions in those communities. But that's very much ground up. Uh, I went to the first People of Color National Leadership Summit um, in the fall, I believe it was the fall of, of 1991 in Washington, D.C., which had the leaders from all these environmental justice organizations around the country uh, there. Uh, and at the end of it, someone made a motion. I remember someone made a motion and said, let's create a national organization. Let's bring a national organization which should be a clearinghouse and help us get all this stuff. And I'm sitting there because I'm a D.C. person thinking, great idea. And it got shouted down. And they said, nope, no national organization. This is a community-based organization. We're not going to have any national leaders and national organization speak for us. Uh, and that's been their touchstone ever since. Uh, I, I can't call the environmental justice movement in all its way a complete success story. Uh, I think they're successful, but we haven't transformed the law as much as we can. But you can see how many things have happened across the United States, uh, how many sites have been cleaned up, how people now recognize uh, as intuitive matter, uh, the importance of it. Again, I mentioned a moment ago, I'm on the board of, of the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, and we, a member of the chair of the committee, we have to approve every matter of litigation done by Environmental Defense Fund. Any approval memo has to have a section on it which addresses environmental justice implications to explain why this is actually addressing environmental justice. You would not have seen that. Uh, Earth Justice now does really significant work on environmental justice. They represent individuals. They represent uh, communities. So I think there's been a seed change. It's very much from the, from the ground up. Thank you very much. We're sort of at the end of our hour. If you feel we haven't asked you something and you'd like to comment on it, please take this space. Yeah. Well, the one thing I, I basically tried to mention, I just want to emphasize it. I do a lot of fun things. I have a great job. I have a fabulous job. Dent in my wall, notwithstanding. Uh, but the best thing I do uh, is launch students. Um, and, you know, not everyone should be an environmental lawyer or should be a, or be a lawyer. Um, but those who do, they can play very important roles. And there's nothing I do more important than launching them. I've got great students. Uh, and they come to law school. They're, they're just hardworking. Uh, they're very smart. But a lot of people are very smart. Uh, they're hardworking. Uh, they care a lot. They're ambitious. They want to make a difference. Uh, and that's a joy. Uh, a joy to launch them. Uh, and these days, the ones I launch who I think will play an important role and addressing climate change are no longer just the ones who want to do sort of pollution control. I, I truly believe that we are going to need lawyers in every part of this nation's economy uh, caring and thinking about climate change, whether it's intellectual property lawyer, uh, whether it's a banking lawyer, whether it's a securities lawyer, whether it's a corporate lawyer who's trying to help a startup, which has got a new kind of battery, an intellectual property lawyer who's trying to help them figure out a way to patent uh, that new technology, uh, which will help. We need lawyers who think and care about climate change all over. And we need, of course, scientists too. Uh, and we need engineers uh, and we need economists. We need political leaders, we need political organizers. Um, uh, we need to do a lot, but certainly as an educator, uh, it's always exciting 
and always uplifting to see every fall to see those students come in uh, and later this week uh, see them go off uh, and uh, and hopefully do good things. This was Professor Lazarus. Please read and interact with his published works on his website via hls.harvard.edu. While you're at it, give SDSN Youth USA a follow as well at the SDSN Youth USA on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for Pilot, a youth-led sustainability blog curated by us with contributions from around the world. Thanks for listening.
we're sort of at the end of our hour 